Why do people choose science when it's convenient for them? How can we as a society move beyond talking about racism when it's only fashionable and performative allyship? And why was 2020 the kick in the dick that we all needed? Big questions that we're deep diving into today with Joe Lorenz, a writer, podcaster, and activist pushing for climate action, social justice, and sustainability. It's time to live wide awake. Hey, it's Steph Dixon, and welcome to the Live Wide Awake podcast. This is a podcast about climate change and consciousness, sustainability, and spirituality. Each week, a special concoction for your listening pleasure so that you can lead your most conscious life. We're going to be talking about fascinating yet sometimes complicated topics and breaking them down into digestible chunks so that we can live wide awake. If you haven't already, do hit that subscribe button. And if you love what you're hearing, consider supporting us on Patreon. Joe Loren does a bunch of amazing things, which focus on the intersections of climate change, politics, social justice, and sustainability. She's the founder of a lifestyle website, Conscious Citizen Co., podcast host of Giving a F is the New Black, and 24 Hours of Change, a grassroots social justice movement for climate action, who has worked with the Sierra Club and Lonely Whale. She's also written for Eco Age, Tatler, and Elle, just to name a few. When I first discovered Jo on Instagram, I literally devoured her feed for hours, something I don't think I've ever done. Not only is it a total delight for the eyes, think cheeky messages in a perfectly created feed that just makes you want to keep scrolling, but also the captions are a perfect blend of laugh out loud funny on the money commentary that leads to head bopping agreement from the eloquently crafted opinions. Get ready to listen up as today we're going to dive into giving a F about the climate, equality, social justice, and sustainability with a cup of Joe. Joe Lorenz, that is. Joe, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I want to dive straight in. This has been a shit show of a year that no one is going to forget 2020 anytime soon. I loved one of your recent posts where you said, thanks 2020 for being a real kick in the dick. I needed you. We all did. While I'm not quite there yet, I'd love for you to share more on letting that shit go and finding joy during this very bizarre year that we're living in. It is so bizarre. And a kick in the dick is perhaps some of my finest phrasing yet. Yeah, 2020 has been a hell of a year. And I think most people are focusing on the negative which we've experienced, which obviously, I mean, I'm not going to deny has been pretty significant. Yet, I think to be fair, 2020 has also been kind of a real year of enlightenment, at least for me. Uh, we now have more people interested in and fighting for intersectional justice than we've ever had before. The fight against climate change, the Black Lives Matter movement, feminist movement, LGBTQIA rights, all these movements, all these areas of justice, they're all interconnected. Each of them are essentially about fighting for equality and justice for people and planet. And 2020 has definitely brought more um, so many more people to the activism table. I suppose, as well as this, so more than this, as you said, 2020 has really taught me about the art of letting go, which mm. is, is something I, I've been struggling with for years, but like a, I guess, a metaphorical kind of spring cleaned of my own person, I've really been able to choose to declutter my mind and uncomplicate my, my body and uh, essentially re-energize 
my entire being? Is that a little bit too much? I don't know. I just, I guess in essence, I've, I've allowed myself to be freed from little literal and metaphorical baggage. I've, I've made room for my own growth and for my learning and my unlearning for my creativity and for my happiness. And all of that has just been completely invaluable. And in terms of the way that I've actually done it, I've, I've done it in a number of ways. I mean, I've physically done this by donating possessions, um, a few older items and clothing that I was never going to wear again. So I donated them to a recycling textile initiative. But more deeper than that, I've also stopped, <laughs> this is a biggie, stop giving my time and loyalty to people who consistently make me feel shit about myself. I've stopped listening to the views of people who only prioritize their own views without regard to anyone else's. And I've, I guess I've allowed myself the freedom to stop punishing myself for mistakes I've made in the past or all the things I can't change. And in doing all of this, in, in letting it all go, I've I've chosen a happier version of myself. And I mean, there's so much joy in this world surrounded by it when I'm, you know, consistently grateful for it. And I choose to live in that joy, not to live in the shit. Thank you so much for sharing. And so personally, because, you know, recently I decided to focus on more joy in my life as well, actually trying to catch myself when I get lost in my head or my anxiety takes over or whatever, and really remind myself to find joy in the moment. But I really think that it's habitual and about breaking those old patterns and negative bias. So I'm curious, have you found that it was a massive shift and that you didn't really fall backwards? Or do you still find moments where those negative biases do return? And if so, how do you really get yourself out of it? Yeah, it's really hard to completely just go cold turkey on anxiety, so to speak. (laughs) I, I consistently suffer from anxiety. I think all humans do. I think we just have different levels of it based on personal priorities, personal privilege, personal wealth, personal trauma, all the rest of it. I have kind of been talking, I guess I've kept talking myself, being my own personal coach and just saying, let it go, just consistently doing that. I am not doing it with the soundtrack of Frozen in my head, by the way, which just (laughs) popped in my head as I said that. It never has before and now it forever will again. But yeah, just consistently telling myself to let it go and trying to kind of laugh at myself when I'm letting my anxieties take hold because so much of my anxiety is based upon a fear that's irrational. Some of my anxiety is based upon rational fear, like climate change, but other things are just based on things that are out of my control and that everyone is experiencing. And they're not huge things, things like money. You know, of course, money is the driver of our society, but if I have to have less of it in order to make myself happy, or if something happens uh, work wise, things will still happen. You know, there are plenty of people that live out there with a whole lot less than me and live very, very happy and fulfilling lives. So I always try and keep it in perspective and just pep talk myself into thinking rationally about it and, you know, just, just get a grip, Joanne type of talk to myself. Yes, that is so important as well, because most people don't acknowledge that we actually spend the most time with ourselves in our minds. So if you're able to have those pep talks and be a friend to yourself, then you already have a really solid foundation for your growth. That is so true. And yeah, you're right. We're with ourselves the whole time. So you have to be nice to yourself. You know, there's those moments. You you can't be a bitch to yourself, basically. So I try and be friendly. I try and enjoy myself as much as possible. The older I get, the more I laugh at my own jokes. It's kind of embarrassing. (laughs) I make them and no one else laughs and I'm cracking up, but Hey, that's all right. At least I'm (laughs) amused. But it's also those little moments, those things that people take for granted that they think frivolous or so forth, but they're not, you know, having a hot bath with a glass of red wine once a week 
fucking does wonders for me. Pardon my French, but it does. And I can't, <laughs> if anyone can do it, I highly recommend it. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's taking those moments, you know, having a coffee in the morning with no one talking to you. I know that sounds kind of mean, but just that moment to wake up and scroll through your um, Instagram feed or whatever you want to do. These moments matter and it's all about being kind to yourself and yeah, being your best buddy to yourself, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. So let's zoom out a little bit. You know, this year has highlighted to many the environmental impact of human on the planet. Do you think it's enough? And why do you think that we needed a global pandemic for more people to actually wake up? Yeah. Um, I mean, like, like I said before, we were talking about, we have more people coming to the justice table than we've had before. I think with coronavirus, inadvertently, we've all been participating in, I guess, societal disruption, the likes of which most of us have never seen and probably never see again, hopefully. Well, apart from climate change, of course, but many of us have been forced into living low impact lives. And COVID has truly had, I guess, a profound impact on the way we work and the way we interact with each other, the way that we live. And the proof is really in the pudding with the effects of this lower impact living and with us all just slowing down. I mean, pollution and greenhouse gas emissions have fallen across continents and China's emissions fell by 25% earlier this year, which is huge. Nitrogen dioxide emissions have decreased. And I mean, I think we all remember the photos of the Venetian canals being gorgeous and clear. Mm. All these things are great, but the thing is we didn't actually need a pandemic to achieve these things. We know what the problems are. We already have a, I guess you could say, quote, quote, vaccine for climate change. It's called cutting out fossil fuels. It's simple. The world has now um, witnessed the impact of this climate vaccine and has seen it in real time, and we've seen those beautiful clear skies and those clear canals. So the problem's not really solutions. The problem is government inaction. The problem is governments and big corporates being paid off by coal. And the problem is people whinging about economic dislocation, economic effects of renewables, which is quite frankly entire bullshit anyway. I mean, tech innovation and cost reductions mean that renewable energy is now actually primarily considered for its economic benefits anyway. In fact, renewables are now I believe the cheapest form of new electricity generation across two thirds of the world. Mm. So all the people that are going on about the economy, all the people that have, you know, capitalist boners, so to speak, they just need to look at that. We, we do not need to guilt individual people. We need strong legislative support for clean energy. We need this by, like I just said, renewables, but also low carbon infrastructure investment. And then t- things like tax credits for EVs, electronic cars, and so forth. And we need people, people like you and people like me, people like people listening to this today. We need people to lobby our politicians to demand these things because if enough of us do it, those people will listen. The politicians will listen because that's their job and they want to get voted back in. Um, You know, with renewable energy legislation, as well as the shifts that we've already seen materializing because of Corona, we you know, realistically could maintain this more sustainable green future and give ourselves the climate resistance, give ourselves forward trajectory in climate resistance that we so desperately need. Uh, I'm starting to babble now, but I I suppose in summary, (laughs) send an email folks and lobby. It's not hard and it could literally, literally save the planet. Yes. And yet for some reason, I feel like there's a big disconnect with people realizing that our elected officials are actually there to represent us. 
And the more that we contact them, email them, even message them on Facebook and be like, hey, I care about this issue and I want you to do something about it. Then the more people who do it, the more they actually have to start voicing this because they are representing us, the people. And I think I read something of yours that said when people lead, the leaders will actually follow. But how do you think we can get to that tipping point faster? Yeah, again, I think the only way to get there quickly is by more people using their voice, Mm. using their outrage to to push that tipping point. You know, the the beauty and the horror of politicians is that they they want to be popular, they want to be voted Mm. in. So you know, if you if enough people say we will not vote you in, they change their stance on things pretty damn quickly. (laughs) Their loyalty is not to good nor bad. Loyalty is to what's going to get them voted back in. This is the unfortunate truth of politics, but we, that means the power is actually with us, the people, and we hold it. So if we force their hand, they will do as we say. You're absolutely right. They're not the boss of the school. We're the boss of them, you know, in the playground. Mm-hmm. We're the ones that can determine the game that they say we can all play. So we just need to realize that a little bit more. And I think people often get confused with the phrase lobby too. They think of these huge campaigns of billions of dollars. Yes, of course, that's lobbying, but that's also <laughs> capitalist lobbying. I'm just talking about people using their voice and their keyboard and their um, their outrage, their mind in order to um, express what they want to have done with their money and their country and their communities. And it's easy and it's powerful. Like you said, it, it doesn't have to be a really lengthy email or anything. It can be on Facebook. It can even be a tag of a photo on Instagram. Most of these um, politicians are on Instagram right now. Some of them are more savvy than others, but <laughs> you can contact them on Twitter. There's so many different ways to do it. And for every lobby lobby letter that I've sent, I've always received an answer. You know, it may not always be the answer that I want, but you always get a response eventually. So, you know, the more that we get in their face and say, we need this, the, you know, more they'll want us to shut up as well. And they'll just go ahead and do it. Definitely. I'd like to now steer the conversation to talk a little bit about climate change deniers. In the year that we're living in, there are a lot of people who want to race back to the previous normal, which I don't think will ever happen again. But you've covered online about people's relationship with science and scientists. So can you unpack your view on this? Yeah, you're right. We, we can't get back to a quote, quote, normal anymore. But I think looking at climate denialism, I mean, 97% of scientists agree that humans are causing global warming and climate change. Yet, despite this, there's still a whole bunch of people out there who choose to deny such overwhelming scientific consensus. Yet, despite this, there are still a bunch of people out there who choose to deny such overwhelming scientific consensus while simultaneously believing in and benefiting from science in all other areas of their lives. I mean, do you think that these people, when they get a headache, they suddenly deny science? Or do you think they have some Panadol? You know, they they have high cholesterol, high blood pressure. Do they take medicine for this? Or do they simply leave their arteries in the hands of the gods? Of course, they use science when it suits them. They drove, you know, they drove a car to work and they... They put their reading glasses on at their computers, no less. They, they use electricity and plumbing in their homes, which is science, science, science. And they mm. ate food harvested by modern agriculture, which is again science. Hello, sciencey Magoo. I mean, <laughs> essentially, my view on climate denialism is for the most part political or motivated by greed. People choose to deny because they're dumbass political leaders deny it. Hi, Trump you know, or because they're greedy and they don't want to give up their own privilege. But 
I would love to see these same idiots deny science when it comes to fulfilling their Viagra prescriptions. (laughs) (laughs) I love it so much. I love the fact that it is so obvious and yet so simple. It's an amazing argument we can use for some of the harder conversations in our lives. Because, you know, we all have those few people and maybe it's not just about climate change, but other issues as well. And you just need to have those little arguments up your sleeve so you can have a really good conversation. So this is definitely one I'm putting in my back pocket. Good. Go forth and spread the love. As I was doing a little digging on you, I read that your passion for justice actually started when you were really young. Can you share more about the defining moments of your journey? Yeah, no problem. Look, I... I've always been, I guess you'd say, absorbed by the concept of justice, you know, cultural justice, political justice, environmental justice, racial justice, all of it. I was always so captivated by uh, like the right and wrong of it, the equality and the inequality. And I quickly, however, realized that my passion for justice wasn't always shared. Surprise, surprise, young Joanne. And I remember being about, I think I was about 14 in high school in Sydney, Australia, and I had an English assignment, which was on how we benefit from society. And I chose to write an essay on racism and specifically on the racism directed towards the black community in America. Now, I was, I was like really, truly interested in racial justice and To be honest, unlike all of my other homework or indeed my entire schooling, I actually dedicated myself to this essay. I I included references from Black activists in history as well as Black artists in pop culture and music and film. And I researched the facts as best I knew how and I offered my no doubt incredibly insightful 14-year-old opinion. Put the paper in and a week later when it came back, it it wasn't graded. It didn't have anything written on it. There was no um, offering of a critique of any kind, nothing on my grammar, on structure, on substance, nothing like that, which I obviously thought was super weird. And I was about to go and speak to my teacher about it when I saw in red pen at the bottom of the essay, my teacher had simply written the words, this is not your problem. I mean, I I doubt the teacher even remembers this, and but it was you know a hugely significant and defining moment for me as a young person. It left me completely angry, deeply disappointed, and one hundred percent horrified. I mean, not only did her comment completely change how I viewed her, it also to a certain degree made me lose faith in the entire system. Mm. I mean, God, sure, surely this grown up. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is a grown-up and she's an educated woman. Surely she could see that racism was everyone's problem. It, it just left a huge hole in me. And over the years, the outrage that I felt that day has never truly dissipated. I mean, it's, of course, ebbed and flowed with the other life lessons ebbing and flowing with it, yet it has never really gone and it's always going to be a driver for my actions. And, God, nearly 30 years on, I still don't have a blanket remedy on how we can eradicate racial injustice or all injustice yet. I mean, I do wholeheartedly believe that it's imperative that our first actions must be to embrace the discomfort that we've been habitually deflecting for so, so long. Yes. Embrace the discomfort. A very valid point. I'd like to unpack this a little bit more and talk about the intersections of justice, systemic injustices, and how these are all connected with everything we've seen this year and the work that you've been doing. Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting. All our reformist movements, they're all 100% linked, like you said, and they're all essentially just about protecting marginalized people. You know, our ambitions for equity are all just about sustaining human lives. For example, the 
the reality of Black Lives Matter and indeed all justice, all racial justice movements is and has always been about protecting marginalised people. It's not about talking about racism when it's fashionable. It's not about performative social media posts. You know, it's about consistently calling out racial discrimination and I guess unlearning your own inherent racism. It's about white people decentering themselves from life center stage and amplifying the voices of black, indigenous and people of color. Or we can, you know, look at climate justice, another one that, that how it's linked. The reality of climate justice is and has always been about, again, protecting marginalized people. It's not about protecting the holiday houses of rich people in Florida. It's, it is, however, about radically developing lower carbon lifestyles in a sustain, sustainable society in order for us to be ready to help environmental migrants and future climate refugees. It is about protecting the vulnerable nations who are already feeling the damning effects of climate change. Nations, may I add, which are primarily made up of non-white folks, and it is about listening to Indigenous wisdom and respecting the custodians of our lands. Again, you can take a look at the sustainable fashion movement again. This is about protecting marginalised people. It's not about buying the latest trendy environmentally friendly capsule collection. It's not about transparency reports. It's not about greenwashing mission statements. But it is about protecting the lives of those being exploited within fashion supply chains, most of whom, again, are black and brown people. It is about creating circular fashion cycles that sustain people's livelihoods, communities, and in turn, our whole planet. And it is about recognizing how fashion has been propelled by white supremacy, by colonialism, by capitalism, and about how those fundamentals need to change. It's all interconnected. And, you know, look, we're only as strong as the most vulnerable people within our movements. And sustaining human lives and the future of our planet needs everyone to be unconditionally intersectional. It's so true. And, you know, I find it crazy because I've been working in sustainability for the over five years. And yet some of these concepts are so complicated. It can be super overwhelming to understand and to confront the roles that we've been playing. Also, like unpacking this and actually confronting the privilege that goes along with it. And I've had to have a few pretty difficult discussions with people close to me about this topic as I was reading as much as I could. And I found there was a lot of people who wouldn't even engage in the conversation. You know, I'm just trying to navigate through my own minefield, but I'd love to understand white supremacy as a construct, looking at privilege and performative allyship, because so many people did this with the Black Lives Matter movement this year. And now where are they all? Uh, 100%. And just a side point. Yeah. Having these hard conversations, you, you lose more friends than you make friends when you do this kind of stuff. I mean, I'm always amazed when I just a little sidebar, when I put something on my personal Facebook page, you know, my kids playing with a dog, you know, 150 likes, I put something up about justice, three people like it. And, you know, that's, that's where their priorities are. And these are people that I love and I've known for forever, but I'm like, really guys, you really don't give a fuck about it at all. But I'm glad they're like my kids. I guess that's a start, you know, but performative allyship. Yeah. It's been the year of performative, you know, on so many levels, but with the Black Lives Matter movement happening all over the world right now, we're all really bearing witness to calls for systemic change. And this provides people, individuals and businesses and, and establishments like such as our schools and healthcare systems, et cetera, provides them with a real opportunity to assess whether they are doing enough when it comes to areas such as race and inclusion, diversity and bias. You know, we're not a one size 
fits all world. And for far too long, white has been the default and or male has been the default or being cisgendered has been the default. And this has got to change. You know, skirting around the issues of race and systemic racism will get us nowhere. We need to be honest about our privilege and about our past. You know, a, a way to do this would be, for example, we need to have a comprehensive Black and Indigenous history to be taught in our educational institutions in order for students to understand our deeply racist history and how colonialism and slavery has constructed systemic disadvantage. Mm. You know, as well as this, we really need to insist on, again, comprehensive cultural awareness training for medical professionals because we need this to prevent the fact that the life expectancy of Indigenous males in Australia, for example, is estimated to be 8.6 years lower than non-Indigenous males and 7.6 years lower for females. Or we need this to prevent the fact that Black American women are dying from preventable pregnancy-related complications at three to four times the rate of white women. Crazy. Racial discomfort is characteristic of realistically examining white supremacy. We are not in a post-racial world and white supremacy is not just the KKK and pointed hoods. White supremacy is everywhere. It is a construct from which white folks, myself included, have benefited for centuries. I have not been around for centuries, FYI. White supremacy is forcing white culture or beliefs upon nearly every other culture for thousands of years. This violence and erasure of non-white culture has then shaped our beliefs and our standards of a quote-quote dominant culture, one which in turn benefits white people and suppresses and oppresses black, indigenous and people of color. White supremacy is everywhere. As I said, it was 100% propagated by all our big institutions, you know, our education systems, the media, Western science, Christianity, all of which reproduce the idea that whiteness or white culture is normal or quote, quote, better, smarter, holier, in contrast to the cultures of black, indigenous and people of color. You know, as a white woman, I strive to be a good ally by not only actively working to dismantle white supremacy, but also commissioning other folks to join the cause. Because if white people are not willing to own racism in its entirety, then the problem will exist. I hit, I could go on forever about this, but you know, mostly I suppose to be a really good ally, I'm a big believer in the fact that we always need to amplify the voices of black, indigenous and people of color, not just now, not just at this point in time, but always. And amplifies, amplifying the voices of black, indigenous and people of color does not simply mean censoring your own accountability to aid justice. This was another thing that happened with the, you know, the performative black squares, but it was also people just shutting up and not saying anything for a while. There is a fine line between amplifying voices, censoring your own, which means doing nothing. So you can't just censor your own accountability to aid justice. It does not mean posting that performative black square on social media and then thinking your work is done. Far from it. Being a good ally means decentering your white voice from the narrative learning, unlearning, and actively fighting to be anti-racist or anti-oppressive. It means welcoming in the time for white people to be supportive in the wings, not starring center stage. It's the time where white people can continuously address systemic racism at the very core of our severed institutional structures, fighting oppression from sidelines with absolutely no expectation of personal gain. 
That was a great summary into structural issues, the role that we need to be playing moving forward, being anti-racist and being supportive on the sidelines. We really do need to amplify these messages and be clear on how the roles need to be reversed and evolved. So thank you so much for that. And I heard you're writing a book. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's very exciting. The book is kind of a demonstration of how all these areas of justice and reform are intrinsically linked and how... They all need to be dressed as a whole in in an intersectional manner in order to have a real impact, just like we've been discussing. You know, it kind of deliberates on the importance of living a conscious life and how or why all of our actions matter. In it, I discuss that our choices and our actions have either a positive or a negative reaction on the environment or humans or our world and climate change, and that we all have the power to make really informed decisions and expedite positive change. Yeah, I've been writing it for a couple of years now, but it's at the end and it's never, ever felt more relevant. So when can we expect it to come out and read it? Well, I think we'd still be about a year off, but every fingers crossed that we can expedite positive change and get it happening a little bit, bit sooner. Any favorite wedges of wisdom or little green steps that you think everybody should live by or adopt? Yeah, um, let me think. I, I suppose just every morning, just ask yourself, you know, today, can I use my voice to fight for systemic change? Can I use my keyboard to lobby for fundamental and significant environmental or humanitarian change? Or can I use my privilege without the need for thank yous and recognition? Because if so, welcome, you are a goddamn activist. Beautiful. Well, Joe, thank you so much for sharing your wonderful knowledge and ideas with us. I really resonate and love your style and the way that you take these complicated issues, make them a little simpler to understand, but also bring a lot of humor into them and real lifeness, you know? So thank you so much for all the work that you are doing. It is my absolute pleasure. And Steph, thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor. Three things that I'm taking out of my conversation with Joe today is redefining the roles that we play, remembering that people choose science when it's convenient for them, and embracing the discomfort. I hope that today's conversation stirred something deep within you ready to awaken. If you enjoyed today's episode, do hit that subscribe button and consider supporting us. Until next time, live wide awake.